from deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. The snap coming to Del Rio, looking to throw and fires the pass. He's got the receiver and a catch made by Siante Lewis. He breaks the tackle, turns up field, and he scores! Oh, my! Siante Lewis takes it in on a beautiful run after the catch. Second and goal, two-yard line. Yeah, here's the handoff, looking for Scarlett. He's in! Touchdown, Gators! Jordan Scarlett puts Florida in front. Three receivers wide left to the strong side. Ball's on the right hash. Callaway comes in motion. They get the ball to Callaway. He'll in end zone. Touchdown. Oh, my. Callaway, a little jet sweep off to the right. Scores the touchdown from four yards out. And the Gators now lead 20 to 10. Ten minutes to play in the game. Georgia down 11. There's the snap to Easton. Easton dropping back. Looks to throw the pass. It's broken up. Oh, my. Duke Dawson delivered. Awesome Dawson with the beautiful breakup. And the Gator offense takes over. It's fourth down and three, and maybe fourth down and ball game for Georgia. There's the snap to Easton. Easton dropping back, flushed out of the pocket, rolling right, throws the ball. He's got a receiver, Wims. Wims, though, is tackled by Jared Davis, way short of the first down, and the Gators make a tackle on fourth down, and Georgia has turned it over on downs to the Gators again. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The Gators showed their defensive muscle in a 24-10 win over Georgia last weekend and grabbed a stranglehold on the SEC East in the process. Up next for the Orange and Blue is a trip to Arkansas, as the down but not out Razorbacks host the Gators coming off their bye week. On today's show, you'll learn about the accelerated maturation process of center Cam Dillard, hear from O-line coach Mike Summers, and dive into another Gator roundtable with FloridaGators.com's senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. But first, going off to college is a big step in life regardless of your own personal circumstances, but some have more responsibilities than others. Redshirt junior Cam Dillard may be one of the most extreme examples of how different one's college experience can be, and you'll find out why in a few minutes. But we began our conversation with Florida Center by asking what it meant to be part of a third straight win in the Florida-Georgia rivalry. Uh, it's one of the biggest traditions in college football is playing in that game, and that game being played in Jacksonville is just uh, its an awesome venue to go play at, and uh, it's a great opportunity to be a part of that tradition and that history. It, it seems like Coach Mack has really challenged the offensive line at certain points this year, and even as recently as that Georgia game, the fourth down late when you're trying to seal it. What does it mean to you guys when he basically says, go get a yard, and if you don't, you're putting it on the whole team. Go get that yard for us. It definitely shows that he trusts us. He knows that what we're capable of and what we can do and that we can get the job done. And uh, so just having having him have that trust in us gives us a little extra motivation. I want to go back to the beginning for you now and just give people an idea where you come from, your family, what your parents did for a living. Give us the uh, the nuts and bolts of Cam Dillard. Uh, basically, I'm from Canton, Michigan. My mom uh, was a nurse growing up, and my dad worked for the Coca-Cola company. Uh he was in charge of uh, McDonald's across the country, I guess, for what he did. And uh, grew up playing football since I was seven years old. 
got recruited and chose Florida. And one of my best friends who plays at Pittsburgh, uh, he's a family friend of mine, and uh, he introduced me to my wife. And, uh, you know, we got married down here, and three years later we have a baby boy who's uh, five months now. You answered my next five questions all at once there. So I'm, I'm going I'm to pull you back a little bit and tell me about the circumstances that, that led you to your now wife, Riley, when you were still in high school. So, a friend, like I said, a friend of mine who uh, plays football at Pittsburgh, he is a family friend of my wife, and uh, so he introduced me, um, and we just headed off from there. Uh, started dating, and then uh, eventually we got married, and then three years later led us to our baby boy. So you were both going to Florida just by chance? You were both happening to, to be going to Florida at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. She uh, she uh, came down here on a lacrosse uh, manager scholarship. When you, you guys got together and after, what was it, four months, you yeah. guys got married just instantly. Take me through that because I, I know a lot of young people don't understand that. So take me through that process for you and, and what led you to, to such a, a quick decision there. Um, you know, a lot of people ask you uh, – how'd you know, or mm-hmm. how do you know when you're ready to get married and stuff like that? And I tell them, you just know when you know. And, uh, I just, I just knew that this was a woman that, um, it's just something about it. You could, that chemistry, you just hit it off with them. And I just knew that this is the woman that I want to spend the rest of my life, my life with. And, you know, I made the decision and, um, couldn't be happier that I did. Now, almost immediately you wanted to have kids as well. So you got married after four months, you wanted to have kids. With everything that was on your plate, coming to Florida, school, football, etc., why was that a challenge that you wanted that quickly? I don't know if we wanted it that quickly. I just knew we wanted kids, and uh, it just happened that my wife was pregnant, and then uh, she miscarried, and then it, you know just led us to the adoption and stuff like that. So, you know, it was. I think it was by by faith and by chance that you know God put this opportunity in front of us, and you know we followed Him and went from there. How did you end up going to adoption, and, and how difficult was that to go through that process? It was long. Uh, last year, every Tuesday, I used to go to uh, adoption classes, and uh, right after practice, I'd head over there for two to three hours a night and, uh, you know, go through that and, you know, go through the whole whole home study process and stuff like that and having to go to court for it. and uh, it, was, it was busy. You know, I had to be very time-oriented and stuff like that and very structured on time, but... Uh, you know, it all worked out and everything took care of itself. And now I've got an amazing boy at home. When you're going through that, how skeptical are people on the other side of that process that you're a college student, you're playing football, you're young? I mean, how much does that play into the other side of adoption of you being able to get the baby? You know, a lot of people said that, uh, you know, you're missing out on your 20s and stuff mm-hmm. like that. 20 is the best time of your life. And, uh, yeah, 20s may be the best time of your life, but I'm able to do all these life adventures with my wife and with my son and stuff like that. So I just I look at it differently. I just look at I take it a different approach to that and um you know, uh I just go from there really. What else goes on in adoption classes? And what do you is it what you see in the movies like <laughs> is it you know reading the baby books and all that? I mean, what what are you doing during all that? Uh so really like the adoption class also went with a fostering type route as well um because Gainesville is such a big community and adoption and fostering and stuff like that so you were able to learn about just children how they respond to things and stuff like that so it really helped me grow to 
become a parent and be able to learn all these things that's going to be happening with my son and stuff like that. So really, it was, it was really cool to help me out and, you know, let me learn and grow. One of the, the downsides to adoption is that at any point, the mother can pull out and she could go and, and say, nope, I'm going to keep it now. And I know that was a concern of yours all along the process. How stressful was that going through such an extended process, knowing that at any point it could be taken away from you? It's very stressful because, you know, you got your mindset on, yeah, I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to have all these things happen to me. And then, you know, at one moment she could be like, nope, not doing it. But, you know, you just have to keep, keep focusing. And really, uh, we just kept praying and we focused on God, really. Um, you know, he provided us with this opportunity. So we just kept praying and thinking, you know, uh, he gave us the opportunity at you know, there's no way he's going to take it away and stuff like that. So we just kept focusing on all the positives. And when your son came, Emmett Dillard. Yep. Why? Why Emmett? Uh, you know, Emmett means strength. And uh, I feel like it's the perfect situation for it. Um, you know, be strong. We had to be strong through the whole process. And, uh, you know, uh, I just think that uh, it, was a, it was a perfect name for our son, why we chose it. And, uh my wife also babysat Emmett when she was little, and she always just loved the name, so we went with it. I think a lot of people assume it's because of Emmett Smith, but it's actually it's not because of Emmett Smith. A little bit, you know, being a Gator, stuff like that, a little bit of Emmett Smith, but there's also a lot more backing to it. Um, you know, people just think Emmett, oh, Emmett Smith. Right. But there's a lot more to it. We talk to your teammates all the time about the challenges of managing school and football and all of the things that you guys have in front of you. Can you try and describe what it's like doing all of those things and then adding a marriage and a baby? How I mean, how is that even possible? Really, you just got to focus on uh, trying to get work done ahead for school, stuff like that. So when I go to tutoring, you know, I just try to focus on, you know, I'm here at tutoring. I'm going to focus on this. I'm going to do all this now. And then that way uh, I'm able to have some free time. You know, I try to get as much work done as I can at night. And then, uh, you know, throughout the day I can hanging out with them and stuff like that. I know this summer was especially crazy because of everything you were doing at maybe the, the earliest stages of Emmett's life. So tell us about an average day during this past summer for you because I, I saw the schedule and I was blown away by it. So I'd wake up 5.30, we'd have workouts, 6, and then uh, go to class, uh, go to meetings, um, then go to practice, and then uh, by that time you've you got to eat real fast because you got tutoring scheduled. Uh, practice gets out 5:30. You got tutoring scheduled by six. You know you got to eat real fast, and then mm-hmm. you got to go to tutoring, and then you're there all night trying to get all your work done. And then by that time, you're, you're hoping to get home by nine. It's it's overwhelming to think about, but I I wonder how that's also changed you for the better. In what ways has this experience made you a better person, and also affected you as a football player? It's made me a better person. Uh, just be able to understand people, understand where people are coming from, stuff like that, and. Uh, as a football player, um, you know, I think about them. I think about uh, when I'm playing, I think about them, thinking about doing all that I can for them, and, you know, um, and that, that in turn helps my teammates out, and I've raised my level of play and help helps them on the field as well, you know, when we go out and get the W. How have your teammates reacted to Emmett? Uh, the team loves him. I mean, they all call him Little Cam, stuff like that. <laughs> uh, you know, Antonio Callaway loves him. Uh, he's always asking about him, always wanting to, when he's around, always wanting to hold him and stuff like that. And Tyler Jordan and those guys, they, they just love him. They love, uh, they love calling themselves uncle and stuff like that. So, uh, they always want to see him and ask, they always ask how he's doing. 
you seem to have a pretty clear idea of, of what you want and where you're going in life. So as of right now, what do you see for yourself and your family after football is over, at least here at Florida? I mean, honestly, that's, that's a big question. You know, there's a, there's a lot of uncertainty that can happen. You know, uh, you know, my ultimate goal is to do what I need to do here and take care of business and hopefully have the possibility of playing in the NFL one day and, you know, having a career there. And after that, we'll figure it out. Where do you see the offensive line and your overall performance at this moment relative to where you want to be or where you think you should be? You know, I think we're on the I think we're on the rise. I think we're on uh, you know, we're becoming of where we should be and stuff like that. And I think we've been consistent the last couple of weeks and you know, we just keep growing and keep getting better each week and uh you know, Coach Summers has helped us out a lot and uh I only think we're gonna get better from here on out. Before we started talking, you mentioned that uh, sometimes social media can be unkind. How difficult is it to deal with the, the negativity that can come from this culture that we live in now? Uh, you know, people like to hide behind their, their screens and mm-hmm. talk about you, but, uh, you know, you don't worry about that. You, uh, you just block them out and focus on what you need to do and focus on helping your team out, you know, win the games and stuff like that. And, you know, if they want to bash you and they want to talk about you and stuff like that, that's fine. You can hide behind your Twitter screen and stuff like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, all, all that matters is you helping your team and you doing what you need to do in order to help your team get to the, get to the, win the game, get to the championship. You're a redshirt junior, so a lot of your teammates are going to be going through senior day next week. What does that do to you when you see so many guys that you came in with who are going to be heading out and they know that their their time is winding down here? It's crazy. You don't realize that time's gone by this fast. Like I can remember first day on campus uh, like it was yesterday, and the fact that it was four years ago is just it's unreal, uh, especially now that I have a baby, time just – it goes by even faster and I can't believe, you know, he's going to be six months this month. So, you know, time just goes by fast and, you know, it re- you really just need to take, you don't, don't take anything for granted and really just take each, each day, one day at a time and try to enjoy it, you know. As the Gators have come into their own throughout the year, the offensive line has continued to tighten up and grow together. One of the youngest units in the team bears a great responsibility to anchor the ground game and protect Luke Del Rio. So Jeff Cardozo caught up with O-line coach Mike Summers to get his take on their progress. You go through each game of the season and kind of evaluate where you are and work on the things that need to get better and, and, and strengthen the things that we feel like are strengths. But uh, as, I've, as I've watched these guys each week of the season, um, they have gotten better. They've gotten closer together as a unit. They have uh, understand more about how to work with each other, which is a big part of playing in the offensive line. Uh, there, you know, there's guys on my right and guys on my left, and, and I have to know within inches of how, where to step, where to put my hands, where to put my, my eyes. And, uh, and when I do that correctly, it's a, it's a seamless, choreographed execution of a play. Um, when I struggle to do that, you have guys that step on each other, guys that run into each other, guys that are too far apart or too close together. And those are all the things that you start in fall camp working on so that you can get to a point in this part of the season where you can start to work as one unit, work as a, a group that fits well together. And, uh, and hopefully because of that, we're able to get some offensive production. 
It seems like the the leader of that right there at the uh, the center position, Cam Dillard, he's you know doing things that maybe thirty year olds don't have, but catering a family and trying to go to school and doing all these other things. It seems like he's sort of the guy that, that's making that unit cohesive. I think so. I think he, because of the position, uh, naturally. At, at the line of scrimmage, he's the guy making a lot of the calls. He IDs all of our fronts. He's going to ID the point linebacker on all the plays, which puts us into the combinations that we need to be in for each particular play. So all of that, um, the, the vocal part of what he does is so important because it is a calming effect when he knows what he's doing and is uh, exact in what he's doing. Everyone else up there uh, understands the blocking assignment. They understand how to fit together. And there's a, a calming effect of, hey, we're on the right people. We know this scheme. We know this front. Let's go execute our technique. Um, Cam's been uh, really instrumental in just being kind of the glue of that group that um, because he's worked hard at his craft, he's worked hard to, to know the offense, and he's worked hard to understand the things that we're trying to teach him in terms of how to execute um, that's passed through the rest of that group. And it, it works from the center all the way through the guards out to the tackles. Uh, and I think as you get to this point of the season, you start to see those guys working better together. You guys uh, had a whole bunch of first downs. You controlled the line of scrimmage against Georgia, and you dominated in the time of possession. Does that make you smile when you go back and, and watch film, knowing your guys were able to move the chains? I think that's something that is going to have to happen as we go forward in these last several games that um, all the teams that we play in this league have got really strong uh, front fours, the, the, the front seven group and, and these defenses that we're playing are are very tough. Um, for us to be able to go out and, and really have the time of possession that we had Saturday was, I think, critical in a really tough, close game. You know, 37 minutes of time of possession means that we've got the ball and they don't. Uh, it means that we're converting on third downs. And then when you get to the end of the game and you're able to – you have a lead and you're able to take two drives and, and really push the ball down the field and not give the ball back to them, I think that's how you win games. That's how you become a championship team. Um, and so I'm very excited that, that we were able to get that done. We still are a work in progress. We still have, you know, some really young players in there that are seeing things, um, you know, sometimes for the first time, new fronts, new blitzes, new patterns to, to how they want to run line games. So there are things that we have to continue to work on and get better at, certainly. Um, but I think as we as we look at that group, we've been able to see that progress through the season. You look at the third downs, and you guys are the, the best team in the SEC at converting third downs. So why is it so important for, for you your unit to be good to make that happen? One of the things that makes your third down conversions high is what you do on first and second down because you're not going to convert a lot of third and longs in this conference. So it's critical to be able to get that into a manageable third down uh, distance so that we can execute. Uh, one of the things that I've been really proud of has just been our execution on short yardage. You know, we, we've been very effective at being able to take those third and one and third and two situations, uh, our goal line situations, and knock those through for first downs or touchdowns. Um, that, that does so much for your offense. Uh, you know, it's it's... It's really deflating to get into those situations and not be able to convert. Likewise, when we get into the third medium and third long situations, to be able to handle the pressure that you're going to get up front, the blitz packages that teams play against you, um, you know, to be able to sort through those and be in the right spot and give uh, Luke time to be able to execute down the field is critical too. So all of that plays into being effective, um, to, to being at 50 or over 50% 
Uh, a conversion rate right now is something that's really helped us to be able to maintain the ball change field position and put our defense in a good position to be able to do what they do. You talk about deflating. It's got to be deflating when you, when you look at film and you see some of these ends trying to get past Juwan Taylor. For, for a freshman to be able to do that, we all know his story and how hard he's worked to get out there. seems like he's pushing guys around pretty good. He's doing an extremely good job. Uh, he, he's got the size that you have to have to play in this league. Um, but probably more than that, he's been able to control his body position and generate power with his hands so that when he has to deal with speed rushes off the edge, when he puts his hands in the right spot and engages those defenders, then he disarms their rush. He takes the steam out of their ability to rush up the field or counter back inside. A lot of that has to do with his athletic ability, staying in the right position, and then also being able to engage with those powerful hands. Uh, it takes away the rush. And uh, when he does it correctly, he's, he's really fun to watch. Uh, there is some inconsistency because he is a freshman that we have to deal with. And, uh, and, and sometimes that's trying for me to be able to make sure that we're in the right spot that we recognize what's going on and that we're, we're always consistent with, with who we have. And, and certainly with true freshmen, that's, that's a battle that you face all the time. But he's handled that really well, and, and uh, occasionally we have to tune him back up and get him on the right guy. But I'm, I'm excited about what he's been able to do. I know we're excited to uh, get after Arkansas, and you've been doing this for so long. You look at the last time Arkansas was out there, Auburn ran all over them. But every game's different, right? You, you can't watch that film and all of a sudden, hey, we're going to attack this because of that. So as you, you talk about the chess match and trying to get ready, what are some of the things you try to take advantage of? Well, I think that shows the maturity of your football team as to how they approach preparation each week. Um, we know as coaches that uh, every week is a new week. Uh, Arkansas has got some pretty amazing stat about their wins after SEC losses. They've been able to bounce back, and get wins the next week. You know, we're very aware of the fact that they do a good job of re-motivating their players to come back and uh, and put their task uh, on hand and, and refocus on the details it takes to win. That's certainly something that we have to do. And, and as our team grows in maturity, we'll prepare each week to know that we're going to get the best of every team that we play. Certainly with our success, that happens. Uh, since I've been at Florida, it seems like everyone prepares for Florida that way. We're the team that everyone likes to beat. Uh, so we're going to get their best shot. And uh, we, we have to prepare like that and, and understand that uh, we control our destiny. We have control of what goes on. So we go out and prepare ourselves for, for the best game that we can play. We know we're going to get the best from Arkansas. They're a really good football team, and they've got the ability to, uh, to control a game. And it's our job to go take that away from them. With three games left in conference play, Florida controls its own destiny in the SEC East and could even afford one stumble and still head to Atlanta. In another podcast roundtable covering a wide range of Gator topics, Scott Carter and Chris Harry began by discussing Florida's advantageous position and their continued dominance on the defensive side of the ball. You know, the identity of this team is defense. They're still wanting to kind of uh, define that identity more going forward, but we saw it on Saturday against Georgia. It's a game that obviously was very important to Florida in the SEC division race and some of their goals uh, the rest of the season. And, boy, that defense looked uh, spectacular. I mean, against uh, a really good freshman college quarterback in Jacob Beeson, 
top-notch running back in Nick Chubb. And it was amazing how quiet Nick Chubb was the whole day. I mean, Sony Michelle, too. Yeah. I mean, those, both those guys were 1,000-yard rushers on their resume. <laughs> they were yes. hardly mentioned. And, of course – 21 the, carries, 19 yards – Combined, the Gator defense held them to less than one yard a carry. Amazing. Two of the best backs in the league. Right. Yeah, and that's with the defense that going into the game, big storyline was how many of those guys were going to play. Nobly Jerry Davis, and of course Jared played and came out, led the team with seven tackles, Mm -hmm. two and a half for loss. It was basically the Jared Davis we knew. And, you know, getting Brian Cox and Joy Ivey out there. And uh, overall, just a big win for Florida and a – Puts them in a great place, uh, coupled with the Tennessee loss. They can, you know, do some special things here if they can keep winning, and, and that's going to be their goal out at Arkansas on Saturday. Defense really didn't surprise us that much. I think, uh, you know, Florida tried to get some stuff done offensively against uh, a Georgia team that's probably a little bit underrated in terms of its defense. I believe they were mm-hmm. 25th in the country. Uh, I believe a top uh, five defense in the in the Southeastern Conference. Uh, Florida, I think, had right around 100 yards rushing. Scott, uh, 100, uh, exactly, yeah. 100 yard rushing. Um, uh, Luke Del Rio wasn't particularly crisp, but I do give him credit. The Gators were nine of uh, 18 on third down. That kept some drives line. They had two touchdown drives of at least 10 plays, and that really helped against a doing that against Georgia. And Georgia, I believe, was second in the league in time of possession. So what they wanted to try to do is control the ball against the Gators, keep the ball away from them, and yet Florida's defense was never going to give them a chance. I think I had a, I saw, I was looking at the drive chart. It was something ridiculous. I think nine of the last 10 Georgia drives were either punts or ended on downs. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, just a phenomenal job by those guys. And, um, and they're getting healthier now too. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Jared Davis will have an, another week to get, to get a little bit better, but what a warrior that guy was. Hats off to him. Yeah, I thought it was interesting too. And I was sitting in the stands when both teams came out and just watching the team come out of the tunnel, what was notable was Jared Davis kind of peeled off the group and he ran all the way into the end zone to where the band was. He was leaping, he was jumping up and down, just really exuding that swagger and that confidence that said, hey, I'm here to play, I'm good to go. And it really seemed like everybody else followed suit. Brian Cox is playing with a giant club on his hand. <laughs> and these are all upperclassmen, too. These are guys who have, in theory, more to lose than underclassmen with their NFL futures, and yet they all found a way to get out there and play. Well, uh, you know, talking to Jared Davis after the game, out with his group of family and friends from Kingsland, Georgia, who came down. Very They enjoyed big, it, I'm sure. Very big <laughs> moment for him. It was his last Florida-Georgia game. He knew he wanted to get out there. And in his post-game press conference, he said it was an emotional week. And, uh, you know, talking to his mom, I was like, I'm thinking, okay, he's probably told her during the week when he's going to play. And she said no, he really hadn't. She did not know until they got off the bus and he told her, hey, mom, I'm going in. So all that emotion played a part into what you just talked about, the way he reacted coming out of the tunnel. You know, Brian Cox, it was his last Florida Georgia game. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there was a lot of guys out there. You know what this rivalry means to these players? You came out there and you saw that just emotional intensity from the beginning from that defense. And it really started early right after the Del Rio interception on Florida's first drive. Then the Gators held him out of the end zone. And to me, even though Georgia took that brief 3 nothing lead, uh, I think that kind of set the tone for what we ended up seeing the rest of the day. Yeah, these guys, these guys don't care about they're, – they're not thinking about the NFL right now. I mean, these are – especially guys like Brian Cox, <coughs> excuse me, and Jared Davis, these are their last few weeks of playing college football. This means a lot to them. I still remember 
last year at the conclusion of the after Florida lost Alabama in the SEC championship game at the Georgia Dome. Jared Davis sitting on this table outside in the hallway while everyone's interviewing him. I mean, he was he was just so dejected about the way the game went, and that's when he decided at that time that he was not done playing college football. He wanted to come back because he did not want that kind of ending to be a lasting memory for him. So if he had one leg, uh, if he was going to play on one leg, I think he would have played in that game. And he was terrific. And, again, like you said, it did send a message mm-hmm. to his teammates. If he can do that, everyone else is going to play hard. When, and offensively, this was a game against Georgia. Florida won with defense. Against Missouri, they really won it with defense. But the one thing I, I did find interesting in the numbers, Florida right now leads the SEC in third-down conversions. They were 9 of 18 against right. Georgia, 50%, and they're 50% overall in the year. So they're not explosive in the way that I think a lot of people want them to be, in the way that they want to be, but they have been pretty efficient staying on the field. And when you're a team that's led by defense, that's really important. That's really good. No, as long as they can continue to put that up, they're going to be in all these games because the offense moves the chains. I mean, that's the, that's the goal of the game. Uh, obviously, they haven't had those – you know what, 75-yard touchdown passes yeah. like they did maybe a couple of times earlier in the year. Uh, but I think that stat's one that's definitely overlooked, Adam. You know, any coach will tell you if you're hitting 50% on third down or above, I mean, you're doing a good job offensively of sustaining drives. And, and that does keep the defense off the field. And when you're as talented as Florida is on defense, if those guys are fresh, that's going to be a problem for the opposing offense. So, it's a formula that right now is working well for this team. And uh, if they can keep that formula going, they're going to win some more games. Conversely, not a lot of teams convert third down against the Gators, too. I think they're third in SEC play at around right around 33%. Yeah. But uh, there's a reason those guys jump up and down on silence. Money, money down, down, money down, money down, money down. What I do find interesting, and this is just from watching the press conferences on Monday even, the players know, especially on offense, they know that the perception is that Florida's winning with their defense. Mm-hmm. They don't care. They actually seem to embrace it. I mean, that's a Luke Dover. You went into a whole thing about look at teams that are winning championships. The Big 12 teams that are scoring 60 points a game, they're not winning championships. They're not in the top really, 10 now. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They seem to really embrace this idea that, you know what, we're going to win with our defense, and, and that's okay. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's more of a fan-based thing than it is a player thing. That's for sure. I can tell you that. Um, we all know college football fans, I mean, they all like the offense. Uh, mm-hmm. It's what's fun to watch on TV. But you look back in the history of this game, I mean, defense, it's a cliche, but, yeah, defense often wins championships. Alabama, as good as they have been over these last uh, eight, nine years, and they have gotten some more explosive plays under Lane Kiffin, but what has really made them do what they've done is a great defense every single year. I mean, they've had A.J. McCarron and, what, Greg McElroy. Those guys are game managers. Last year, Jake Coker, none of those guys are going to – you know, they're not blowing up the NFL. I mean, I know McCarron's in the NFL. but uh, So what it is, that's just the way you can win a lot in this conference. Uh, these other schools in this conference are, you know, building that way. And, you know, Florida certainly has a defense. And if the offense continues to improve like we've already talked, you know, they're there. They're where they need to be. I'll also say also that historically at this program, the greatest <laughs> years of this program, they had an offense that, sure. that was and that was Fourth of July fireworks, yeah. and that's that's obviously what they what they would love to see again. 
Um, I don't know if the personnel is here, but when Jeremy Foley hired Jim McElwain, he hired him to fix the offense. So that's something that he came here to do. That's certainly something he wants to do. He had an explosive offense at Colorado State, and the Gator fans want to come to the stadium and see 56 to 10 games where there's you know, 550, 600 yards of offense. Um, I don't know if they're going to see that at Reynolds uh, Stadium in Fayetteville this weekend. Maybe you know they they could certainly run the ball against them, but you got to play to your identity. If you take if you take the uniforms off. Florida and put their defense in Alabama's uniform, I don't think you know the difference. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I say the same thing. Michigan and Ohio State would love to have Florida's defensive players, I would imagine. Not that they don't like theirs. I'm sure, I'm sure they love theirs. But right now, Florida is a defensive-heavy team, and the offense is trying to catch up to the defense. It's probably not going to happen this year, but going back to what we said before, this is this is Florida's identity. But how much better are the, is Alabama's defense or Ohio State's defense and, than, and Michigan's defense than the Gators? I think it's a draw. I want to talk a little bit more about Arkansas. I think Arkansas is different than they've been in the past. And Jim McElwain was quick to point out November is their month, and they've been so good in November. They won seven out of eight two years ago and three out of the last four. Right, and, and right. In, in both those cases, I believe they were – last, Their last – And they were a sub-500 team prior to that. Or they, they got were struggling, hot And then they get hot in November. But also, Chris, we were talking about this before we started. They're not quite what they've been in terms of their calling card. It's been that in the month of November – the bodies up front seem to get heavier, and they just pound the pound ball. offensive lineman just right. run it down your but throat. But they're, they're not doing that this year. They're 12th in the league in rushing. No. So I, I guess there's some question as to what their identity is as we hit November. Yeah, because, uh, like, again, Brett came down there. He wanted to play like they played at Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And, and those last couple of years, they've been able to do that in the, in the latter stages of, of the season. But not being able to run the ball against Alabama, though, uh, Arkansas quarterback, help me out here, Austin, Austin Allen. Allen. Yep. You know, it turned into a passing game for him. He threw for 400 yards and three touchdowns. And I also got sacked six times and threw three interceptions. But what McElwain was talking about, he says they work pretty well off their play-action pass. Um, they will try to, you know, if I'm the Gators and they have to end up passing the ball, I think that's a great recipe for Florida on the road. If Arkansas has to pass the ball, that means, that, that means they know what they're going to do. That means they're one-dimensional. That's what they want. That's what they wanted against Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what jumps out at me, Adam, is the – in a bill, Arkansas, as much as bad as they've been rushing the ball, against Auburn, 547 yards, I think it was, they gave up 78, 9, 21, 23, 31, and 51 yards wow. in that game. That's a lot of wild uh, running. That is, that is a lot of running wild. So, uh, you know, I don't know how much tape they're showing them of that game. I don't know if I'm a coach, if I'm showing them a bunch of tape of a blowout win like that. But if I'm Jordan Scarlett and Michael Piran, I'm pretty excited about that opportunity. Yeah, for sure. And it was a question mark going into last week's game without Mark Thompson. We know that uh, he's going to be back, according to uh, Coach Jim McElwain. So gives him another option back there, another big back. But I do like the way the, the Florida backfields kind of emerged here with Jordan Scarlett. To me, he looks really good. I've, I've said all along how much I like Michael Pirine as a true freshman. And you get Thompson back, he's just another dimension back there. We got another football question. Here we go. This is from Alexander. Alexander says, can Florida still win the SEC East if they lose one or two of their next games. Gosh, I, I almost want to be the expert here because I know the answer. I'll let you guys do it. Go you ahead. Answer Who wants it? How about you answer that? Okay, yeah. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> so here's the situation. Florida right now has a game-and-a-half lead, essentially. If they lose one game, they still control their own destiny, no matter who the loss is to. If they lose two games, this is the craziest part. If Florida loses two games, the team that is best in position to take advantage, the Kentucky <laughs> Wildcats. That's right. It is November, and Kentucky has a tangible path to the SEC championship. They would have to beat Georgia at home, 
Then they'd have to go on the road and beat Tennessee. And by that point, who knows who Tennessee will have left at the rate that people are jumping off of that ship. So it's possible that Kentucky could go to Atlanta. But Florida right now, they have the inside track. They're the only team that controls their destiny. And it's basically a two-and-a-half game lead on Tennessee. Yes, Tennessee's in tough shape right now. It's tough shape. Like you said, there's got, they got players quitting. they got unbelievable injury issues on that team. And I imagine the morale's pretty bad, but it is pretty. Kentucky, obviously, Florida would have the uh, the tiebreaker with them by virtue of that blowout win uh, early in the season. Nothing really much to add, like Chris said. I mean, when you control your own destiny, which is where the Gators are, that's kind of where you want to be this time of year. So I think the that message is being reinforced, you know, down in the locker room amongst the team. Especially what happened in Knoxville. I mean, everyone, the yeah. way everyone left in Knoxville and the sure. way they're – and then the next week what happened to Georgia. And these, these circumstances are very fortuitous. It's just – yeah, it is. It's, it's just another reason why I love college football because, you know, let's face it, after that Tennessee game, Florida's done. This is the year Tennessee finally does it. And you know what? If Tennessee doesn't, Georgia's going to beat Florida. Here we are, what, five weeks later? Right. And it's all right. topsy-turvy. Let's talk some basketball. Uh, what's the latest? We know there was a – Exhibition game people got to see, and there was one that people did not get to Florida see. Florida played Eckerd College. It's a good Division II team. It went to the NSA tournament last year, won its conference, won its uh, postseason tournament. But uh, Florida came out slow, look, did not look good, did not play good defense at all in the first half, actually trailed at halftime. I believe the score was 33-32. And then just rolled out full-court press uh, in the second half and ran Eckerd out of, out of the building up there in Jacksonville. They ended up winning, I believe, by 29 points. Um Defense is going to be a little bit of work of progress for this team, I think, Adam. Uh, it's, it's an experienced team, um, but some of the players coming back experience-wise, Devin Robinson is, is, is a guy who needs to improve his defense. Canyon Berry is a guy who needs to improve his defense. He's fifth-year senior, the graduate transfer, obviously, from College of Charleston. But uh, Casey Hill did not play in the exhibition game in, uh, in, in Jacksonville, but he did come back and play in the close scrimmage at UAB. And from what I'm told, Florida played very well in that. We can't get into details because of NCAA rules, so sorry we can't get into details on that scrimmage game. But Florida did play well up at that thing up in Destin. So Johnny Bunu has shown some really good – growth signs and one of the things that he needs to do a lot better this year is kind of control his emotions when when he doesn't get the ball but one of the points of emphasis this year is he's posting up hard get the ball into the interior and then things can start happening for them so that'll be the stuff that, that uh, the Gators are talking about Chris Chioza is playing some of the best basketball you know preseason wise that since he's been there and so now the team will open November 11th up in Jacksonville against Florida Gulf Coast. Obviously, Odom right out here still under construction, and the Gators will uh, move in there in December against uh, Arkansas Little Rock, I believe, the 21st. Uh, okay, final thing before we go today. A new AD, we've talked about it recently. Scott Strokin officially has started his tenure here at Florida, and I know you guys have had, uh, had some interesting dealings so far with him. Yeah, you know uh – I haven't really chatted with him since he got here because I've been busy, and I'm, I know he's been busy. I did see him at uh, Jim McElwain's press conference yesterday and waved. But uh, I also saw him jogging down by the golf course, so probably uh, just relieving a little stress and getting to know his environment here. And uh, that was one of the things he told Chris and I at an interview we had before he got hired, that, you know, how does he kind of you know, keep focused and stuff. He loves to run. Uh, so he's he's kind of getting into that mode here, but obviously a pretty exciting time around here. Uh, 
one guy leaves and another guy comes. It's going to be like we talked about last year, interesting to get to know him and see what his impact is, Chris. He's moved into Jeremy Foley's office. And from what I understand, he's a, um, he's a door open guy. Jeremy Foley was a door closed guy. Hmm. And his door is open and the people around there, they're just not used to seeing, you know, for 25 years that door's been closed. But that, that doesn't mean that Jeremy Foley didn't want you coming in there. That's just the way he operated. Now that door is open and uh, he, I think he sent a letter out to all Gator fans. You can mm-hmm. look at it at floridagators.com saying, you know, he's really happy to be here and, and looking forward to everything. He said he's put his email address. He put he his wants, phone number yeah, on he, there. He, once he puts the phone number, he put his email. beeper number on there. He put his beeper number on there. <laughs> he put, it, put his home address. No, just kidding. But uh, <laughs> he wants to engage with the fans, and he, and he wants to hear what people have to say. He's heavy into fan experience, and he wants Gator fan experience to be as good as they can get. And if people have any concerns about that, he wants to hear from them. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to Gator Tales on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and leave a review to help us continue to grow. In the meantime, watch Florida Battle Arkansas on Saturday afternoon at 3.30 on CBS and listen on the Gator IMG Sports Network. Our next episode comes your way next Thursday as we preview Will Muschamp's return to the swamp with the South Carolina Gamecocks. So until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Fayetteville.